0: Welcome to The Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health, and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to Episode 3 of the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical experience supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. Thanks for being here. As mentioned before, I'm very excited to be here myself and so grateful that you're joining me on this journey. And today on the podcast, we are diving further into the concept of neurological reserve. Specifically today, we're going to talk about brain reserve. And brain reserve is one of the two sub-reserves that together make up the total of neurological reserve. Sorry, there's a lot of reserve there. Trust me, this is great information. And even though you're going to hear the word reserve a lot, it's going to be worth it. But before we dive into brain reserve... I wanted to do a quick recap for folks who might just be joining us first on episode three, or just so that you can be refreshed about what you might have listened to a week or two ago. You'll remember that neurological reserve is the capacity of your brain to handle various metabolic and physiologic stressors. In other words, It is the reserve your brain draws upon or the capacity that your brain draws upon to help it resist, respond to, and recover from injury, stress, aging, and illness. In Episode 2, we were talking about the Nun Study, which is this fabulous study of a cohort of 678 Catholic nuns who generously agreed to donate their brain's and their life histories to research. And this study has given us a rich tapestry of information. We have early life information. We have their education. We have recreational activity. There's genetic testing. Then, of course, there's the results of annual neuropsychological and cognitive function testing. And then, finally, there is the postmortem neuropathological exam findings. This is where, after death, the researchers were able to look at the cells of these nuns' brains under the microscope and assess them for degrees of pathological change or lack of pathological change. And you might recall that the researcher, Dr. Snowden, has published a book on this in 2001, And he had mentioned in one of his papers on this in 2003 that the diversity that they found in the nuns was remarkable. One of the things that was really remarkable, and we talked about this at the end of last episode, is this concept of asymptomatic Alzheimer's dementia. And there was a chunk of nuns, a group of nuns within this cohort that have been found to have asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease. And what this is, and it's remarkable, is where after these nuns died, they looked at their brains under a microscope and they found Alzheimer's dementia pathology. They found changes in the brain cells that would predict that that person had Alzheimer's dementia in life. But Those very nuns actually had normal brain function. They tested as having normal cognitive function. They had normal neuropsych testing when they were alive. So essentially, they were managing to have a healthy brain even though, or healthy brain function, better put, even though their brain was experiencing pathological Alzheimer's dementia-like changes. And finally, we discussed that this is an example of positive deviance. Positive deviance in epidemiological studies are the people who are doing well despite having an illness. So if you think about this in the world of Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease patients are expected to progress and get worse over time in a relatively predictable way. Some individuals really defy the odds and will stay relatively healthy and be minimally impacted by Parkinson's disease pathology and not progress nearly as fast as the average. Those folks are the positive deviants. Same thing goes in multiple sclerosis studies. One of the interesting things about positive deviants in epidemiological research is that they can then look at those folks, once they have a collection of people, they can look at those people and say, well, wait, what might these people be doing differently that could be correlated to their outcomes? You could also look at it and say, well, what's going on with their genetics that makes them more resistant and resilient to this? And there's research like this going on for Alzheimer's dementia. The NUN study actually captures this in a variety of ways, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But we also see the same type of research happening, looking for these positive deviants for Parkinson's disease, and you see it for things like multiple sclerosis and other neurodegenerative problems that are going on in the brain. So now that you've had a recap of what we were talking about and what neurological reserve is on the whole, today we're going to be discussing. Brain reserve, which is half of the whole that makes neurological reserve. The other half of this whole is called cognitive reserve, and we're going to talk about that on the next episode. Starting off, let's just get a basic definition down. So, simply put, brain reserve refers to the volume and size of our brains, including the mass and the sum of the total cells in the brain. Literally, they will quantify. Brain reserve by using MRI technology to estimate intracranial volume. So, the volume inside your skull, presuming that the brain obviously is taking up most of that space. It's largely thought that brain reserve is determined by genetics. At least the size of our brains are determined by genetics. And it makes sense. Your mom or your dad or both have particularly big brains. You're likely to be a big brained individual. And that might sound disappointing because maybe you think, oh, there's not much I can do around brain reserve because it's genetically driven. But that's not true. We can actually be doing a lot of things in life to preserve and protect our brain reserve. And this will make big differences over time. Brain reserve can actually be damaged in various ways. For example, repeated concussions or traumatic brain injury, excessive alcohol intake, smoking, and exposure to neurotoxins. These can all significantly diminish our brain reserve. Additionally, if you experience malnutrition and specific nutrient deficiencies, especially early in life, that can result in reduced brain size and reserve. Iron is a great example of that. Children who have severe iron deficiency during their developmental Years will have reduced brain reserve. A good example for understanding how brain reserve can be injured is the case of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, as the name indicates, is a condition caused by repeat injuries to the brain. And it's really became famous with some pretty big-name NFL players coming forward with their stories and then donating their brains to science. This is another illness that gets definitively diagnosed after the person dies, and they do biopsies of the brain and look and see what's happened to the brain tissue. There was a good study in 2017 that was a study of 202 former football players, 111 of them of which were NFL players, and This was a post-mortem study looking at their brains, and in the 111 NFL players, they found that 110 of them had changes indicative of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Some of these men had played football only in high school, and others had played professionally, and there was a gradation between there. There was college players, there were people with a shorter and much longer life experience on the football field. And of the professional players, and these are people, of course, that we think, and reasonably so, think that they took more hits on the head and had more serial concussions than other folks. 86% of those professional players were classified as having severe pathology on post-mortem exams. And that's a lot. And across the study, they found that higher levels of play, so meaning the more you played football, and the more that you played it professionally, that that was correlated to more severe chronic traumatic encephalopathy found on these postmortem exams. The severe chronic traumatic encephalopathy group experienced the following symptoms in life. 89% had behavioral or mood symptoms or both, and 95% had cognitive symptoms, and 85% were showing clear signs of dementia before they died. So this is an extreme example, and it's helpful, I think, in part because we really see that there is this lifetime risk with recurrent traumatic events to the brain. We can take some steps to protect and support our brain reserve. The most important thing, really, is to prevent injury to our brains. Ideally, this starts from day one, that your parents, when you're a kid, are emphasizing Preventing injury. And through your whole life, there are appropriate steps taken to prevent brain injury in your day to day life. Of course, you, as a reasonable human being, are already aware of many of the things I'm about to talk about. Some of these things are like wearing a helmet. If you snowboard, you're going to fall. Wear a helmet. If you're on a work site where They demand that you wear a helmet for safety reasons, wear your helmet. If you are a skier or a skateboarder or if you do any kind of racing on your bike or bike riding in general, wear a helmet. It really can prevent severe trauma. And although we want to prevent concussions, let's say you are on your bike and you have an accident and you get a concussion... Well, that concussion is a less severe brain injury than a major traumatic brain injury that you might have otherwise had had you not been wearing that helmet. So it's preventing something worse. It might be surprising to hear this on a brain health podcast, but wear your seatbelt. It is a way to prevent a lot of brain injuries, is to wear your seatbelt. And of course, don't drive when it's unsafe to do so, either by weather or by something that you've consumed that makes you an unsafe driver. Take fall prevention seriously at work and at home. You have lots of risks likely at home that you can mitigate through various either construction means or grab bars. And particularly if you have someone in your home who's prone to falls, it's a great preventative strategy is just to have the protective, preventative gear in place. And then with children, we really want to keep them protected. We want to keep kids well protected from falls, from heights, so window guards, safety gates and high risk areas. And honestly, if your kids or yourself you're in sports, one of the most important things you can be doing is adhering to the professional recommendations for return to sport or school after concussion. There is a evolving awareness and science around what's best for recovery from concussion. We will likely do multiple podcasts on concussion because it's such a big topic and it's really common. A lot of people get concussions. Seeking out and adhering to the recommendations of a knowledgeable professional if you've had a concussion is really critical to protecting your brain going forward. And then there are other ways we can support healthy brain reserve, positive things, things that we can add into our life versus prevention. And again with these things we're going to dedicate lots of episodes full episodes or multiple episodes if this is of interest to you stay tuned it's going to be a huge part of what we get obsessed about on the well-nurtured brain. Essentially this is about nurturing. This is about the nurturing of your brain. Your brain needs to be in a body that is healthy, it needs to be in a body that's well rested. It itself needs to be well-rested in order to go through its own repair processes. This list is not exhaustive, but here are some things that, and they're not going to be surprises, but these are things that we know support brain reserve, that just support the tissue in your brain, keeping that tissue healthy. These are things like getting regular exercise, eating a healthy diet, and getting adequate sleep maintaining normal blood pressure is really important. So you do that by knowing your numbers and then particularly if you are at risk doing what it takes to bring down and maintain your blood pressure in a healthy range. That's really important for brain health. And maintaining healthy blood sugar levels. So again if you are at risk for it because it runs in your family, diabetes runs in your family, or you know that On your last annual physical, your doctor said, oh, that's creeping up there. You might want to get your blood sugars under control. This is something you can do. This will protect your brain tissue moving forward if you can get your blood sugars into a good, healthy range. So going back to the Nun study, I promised I'd come back to it. And this study's full of interesting information, and people are still drilling into the data and finding just really cool stuff. One thing they did recognize was that there was a, a likely a role for micronutrients in brain health and brain reserve. And so they did do some looking at this. Some other researchers came in and did some additional research on the samples of the brains and looked at the data. At the time, there was evidence that folate or folic acid plays a role in neurological health. There's lots of further evidence around this, but at this time, this was back in 2000. What Dr. Snowden wanted to establish was, what's the status in these nuns? And then when we look at them over time, we'll be able to look back at their folate levels and see if that had any correlation to how they did. What Dr. Snowden found looking at serum folate levels was that the nuns that had low serum folate levels were strongly associated with having loss of brain tissue in the cerebral cortex. This is the part of our brains that does a lot of our thinking. This kind of loss is a key indicator of Alzheimer's disease-related neurodegeneration. So what makes this study, as I've probably mentioned before, what makes the Nun study particularly noteworthy is that it has highly comparable groups of participants. These were all Catholic sisters who live in the same convent, ate from the same kitchen, and were quite similar in terms of their environmental and lifestyle factors. So this kind of comparability really helps researchers isolate the impact of individual things like serum folate levels in this case. And what they were able to show here was that there appears to be a correlation between serum folate levels and the severity of Alzheimer's disease-related neurodegeneration. Dr. Wing and colleagues in 2012 took another look at the NUN study and looked at the relationship between folate and antioxidants, such as carotenoids, they were looking more at asymptomatic and partially symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. So going back to the previous episode, one of the things that really lit me up when I was looking at this study was all of these nuns that had active Alzheimer's pathology and lesions in their brains in postmortem, but during their lives, this subset of nuns had tested normal for incognitive tests and function, which is hopeful, right? That's obviously very hopeful. The study focused on the nuns that had Alzheimer's dementia based purely on their neuropathology exam. Remember that a subset of those folks actually tested normal in life for their cognitive capacity. So they looked at this subset of the nuns and examined their blood-level folates and carotenoids and then compared that to see if there was any correlation between the nuns that were asymptomatic in life versus symptomatic in life. The findings of this study revealed that the subjects with the highest blood levels of folate were more likely to be the ones that were asymptomatic or considered asymptomatic Alzheimer's disease subjects versus those who actually had dementia in life is another suggestion that folate status plays a role in delaying or preventing the onset of dementia in individuals, even with Alzheimer's disease pathology. So we might be finding one of the things that's helpful in being resilient despite having pathological change going on in your brain. Overall, I mention these two studies because I want to underline how they're finding in the research that what we eat makes a difference for our brain reserve. There's a lot to look into with this. This so it's going to be an obsession on this podcast. What we eat makes a difference to our brains. There are other studies though that have found that foods that are high in folate, in particular foods like dark leafy green vegetables, seem to correlate with better cognitive outcomes in life. So before we move on, I want to just give you a quick rundown. Of folate, just to be sure that you are clear on that. So, what they were measuring was a B vitamin in the blood. And this B vitamin is found in large amounts, particularly in foods like dark leafy green vegetables, like spinach or lettuce, mustard greens. But it's also found in things like peas and beans, asparagus, Brussels sprouts, avocado, whole grains, and of course, broccoli. It's also found in beef liver. That's not my jam but it's there too in really high amounts. And in episode five, we are going to look at some of that research mentioned earlier on one of the folate groups of foods. I kind of think of it as a superfood. Pretty passionate about these guys. Leafy greens. I know it doesn't sound very exciting now, but wait till you hear the research. It's It's amazing. In summary today, we have defined and understood the concept of brain reserve And we've also looked at how we can protect it, support it, and nourish it. And then we specifically looked at one nutrient, a nutrient star for brain health, We looked at folate, and looked at how it shows up as a likely contributor to nurturing brain reserve, at least in elderly people. I hope this inspires you to investigate where you might up your game on protecting and nourishing your brain reserve. If something stands out that you want to put on project status, get working on, I invite you to reach out to a qualified healthcare professional for support. Next on the well-nurtured brain will be part three of neurological reserve. And in part three, we are exploring cognitive reserve. This is the other half of the whole that is neurological reserve. And we're going to look at strategies that support cognitive reserve. We're going to dig back into the NUN study, spend some more time with the sisters to see how Cognitive Reserve showed up in the NUN study and we'll look at some other research out there on Cognitive Reserve that hopefully inspires you to also look at what you're doing there and maybe how you can up your game. Thank you so much for listening and being here. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode and in the meantime please be kind Do you mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.